When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. off last time in part two of this series. We're in Lebanon's Bekaa Valley, and today we're at one of a number of schools and child-friendly spaces set up by World Vision for the children of Syrian refugee families living here. These early childhood schools and child-friendly spaces are part of World Vision's response to the Syrian crisis. I'm Megan Teets, and this episode is the third and final part of a special series on Sorta Awesome called A Refuge for Refugees. This is the response. So yes, we are in the Bakah, near the town of Zala. As we walk into a community center that houses this World Vision School, we can't help but to notice posters and flyers with the phrase, No Lost Generation, written on them. Jessica, the Lebanese woman who supervises the education programs for World Vision Lebanon, tells us that the No Lost Generation initiative includes partners from across several groups, World Vision, but also the UN, UNICEF, and more. And it began once it became clear that the Syrian crisis was going to stretch beyond just a few years of fighting. And that because half of all of the Syrian people who have been displaced from their homes in this conflict are children, a whole generation from this country is extremely vulnerable to the lifelong effects of the lack of access to education. And so part of World Vision's response has been to step up and to step in and support education in a few ways. For children ages three to six, the early childhood education classrooms focus on the basics of literacy and language. This classroom looks like so many early childhood classrooms I've been in. I have four kids and a degree in education, so I've seen a lot of classrooms. And this one is just as bright and cheerful and creative as any I've ever seen in the States. 
eight kids are seated around a table in those cute, tiny little chairs you find in preschool classrooms. The kids are coloring and the teacher is doing some face painting. They could choose between a clown face or Spider-Man. Most of them are choosing Spider-Man. The walls of the classroom are covered with student artwork and the months of the year are written on a calendar with happy gray hippos. And there's a number chart on purple poster board to help the kids learn their numbers. Under the guidance of teachers who are literacy specialists, kids in these classrooms learn to write their names and the alphabet in Arabic as well as a little English too. Here they are singing to us a song that helps them remember the names of colors in English. Classrooms down, older children are participating in one of World Vision's child-friendly spaces programs. These students range in age from 9 to 12, and their day-to-day -day lives are pretty different from the younger ones we just met. These are the children who most likely do remember the atrocities they escaped in Syria, and they're still recovering from the trauma of that. These are the kids whose childhoods were lost overnight. When we were in the ITS, in the informal tented settlement, meeting with families, we asked one Syrian mom how her children were coping with the memories of what happened in Syria. Um, okay, so their youngest children, like three or four of their youngest children, barely remember anything. They, they don't remember anything from, from what happened in Syria. They, they didn't even understand what was going on back then. And, and even some of their older, older children, when the conflict started happening there, when there was bombardment, they would just stand and watch, not understanding what's happening. So for them, like, it's like they erased mo most of the memory from, from Syria and, and they don't remember it. And, and, her, and their mother is saying that if they were to remember some of the memories there, they would go mad. If they remembered, they would go mad. This is the main reason World Vision has set up child-friendly spaces in Lebanon, to provide psychosocial support centers to help them through play, drawing, singing, and sharing their stories with specialists. Through art therapy, play therapy, and music, these Syrian children are given the opportunity to process the trauma of their memories, as well as their anger or sadness about the new normal of their life as children experiencing a refugee crisis. Near the end of part two of this series, I shared with you how children in this age group often have to work five to six hour shifts daily to help them earn income for their families. The child-friendly spaces give them a break from that, a time when they can just be kids again. There was one little boy who spends long hours every day collecting scrap metal to sell for cash. And he told a World Vision staffer that he cannot wait to get to school every day because for those two hours, he doesn't have to think about the rest of his life. Now, the child-friendly classroom is similar to the early childhood classroom in that it's bright and cheery 
in spite of the fact that there's only a single light bulb on the ceiling and an open window providing light for the kids' work. The walls in the classroom are all papered with student artwork. But in here, instead of learning their colors, these kids are drawing pictures of the villages they left behind. There's also self-portraits done in pencil and crayon on one part of the wall, just like so many of the self-portraits my own kids have drawn in their art classes. And there are pictures of faces with expressions and words written on them, like happy, surprised, angry, scared. Everything here is to help in the process of recovering from trauma. We ask the students in this room what they might like to be when they grow up. Here's just a few of their answers. A teacher. Oh, nice. And the doctor. Uh, doctor, yeah. Doctor. Also doctor. Very nice. Soft habitat. Hairdresser. Hairdresser. And you? Doctor. Doctor. Through the child-friendly spaces, these kids are given a place to heal and to recover, to hope and to dream. As hard as it is for us to wrap our minds around the current reality of life as a refugee, it's really just as difficult to comprehend the staggering challenges faced by the Syrians for the future. Our World Vision host, Olivia, she told us that at the beginning of the war, many of the Syrians who were fleeing were leaving behind homes that had been bombed. But now, five years later, it's not just homes, it's entire neighborhoods and actually entire villages that have been completely destroyed. I reached out to Jana Chapman Gates. She's a member of our awesome community. She's also the host of the podcast Cocktail Banter. And she's a strategic communications consultant who formerly worked for the United Nations, where, amongst other things, she was President George W. Bush's senior advisor on a special envoy to the Sudan. There, she worked specifically on expediting the arrival of peacekeepers to Darfur. Clearly, Jana has years of experience in refugee issues. So Jana and I talked about the importance of not just immediate aid for people experiencing refugee situations, but also the often overlooked value of development. Here is some of what she had to say. A lot of organizations are doing great work on this already. Um, but I think that oftentimes people in the United States and in other countries who are paying attention to these issues, they don't understand that that work is underway because it doesn't make headlines, right? right. The crisis makes headlines, but the crisis isn't sustainable. So I think a big shift that needs to happen in our thinking is that this is not a crisis anymore. This is reality. You know, there are 65 million people displaced around the world and 34,000 people every day who are newly displaced. And so you can't treat that like a crisis. You have to meet people's needs. You have to make sure that they are safe and fed and that they are working towards a better life. But you also have to provide them with resources that allow them to build a life. You know, the average stay in a refugee camp is 17 years. Oh, wow. So that means a kid could grow up through high school age and never know anything 
outside of life in a refugee camp. So there are lots of different points to hit there, right? Like people need to be employed, which oftentimes you can't do in a refugee camp. But that's kind of a psychological issue too, right? Like they, they're having their needs met, but they also need fulfillment. Mm -hmm. They have skills and, and resources and talents that need to be tapped into. And a lot of organizations are doing great work on that. But, but oftentimes in refugee camps, that's just not a possibility for people. So we need to think differently about that. Uh, another aspect of it that, again, doesn't often make headlines is people need to be connected with their culture, right? Mm, right so right. I read one article about um, in a refugee camp, I think it was in Jordan, that a bunch of artists got together and created miniature replicas of cultural um, spots in Syria mm. so that they could teach the kids who were growing up in the camp about their homeland that they had not yet seen. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah, it's really, really nice. So that sounds sometimes like an abstract idea, but it's not. There are people who are already working on those issues. And I think that something that is important to remember is that we can be involved in those issues. Whatever you do, wherever you live, there are ways to tap into um, the kinds of organizations who are doing this kind of work. Well, it's a lot to think about, isn't it? I mean, on this the end of things, it is a lot to process. We listen to the stories, our hearts are broken by the images we see, we know that the Syrian crisis is one of the worst humanitarian disasters of our generation. There's many in my country who are wringing their hands over the resettlement of 10,000 Syrians here into the United States. In the meantime, countries in Europe and the Middle East are rising to the occasion to step up and help the millions of Syrians who have fled their homeland and are now refugees in foreign lands. But the great news is there are so many ways that anyone can respond to the Syrian crisis. No matter where on this planet you live, there are practical things that you can do right here, right now. The first is probably the easiest and the fastest way to respond, and that is to respond with support. Support the work that is already being done by humanitarian groups on the ground in Syria and the surrounding countries. There are lots of great humanitarian groups doing work there. Many of them are working together, collaborating with each other to do the best possible good. You can find out if the aid groups that you're familiar with are already involved there, but if you don't know of one already, I highly recommend the work of World Vision. Yes, I know I'm totally biased toward World Vision, but it's for a good reason. On this trip, I got to see up close the reality of the work they do. I have to confess that I did used to think that humanitarian groups were mostly staffed by do-gooder Americans with white savior complexes. But I have to tell you that World Vision totally changed my mind about that. They are committed to staffing their operations in each country with people from that country. 
So it's people who obviously understand the language, but also the culture and the very specific needs of the people they're serving. And not only that, they also have administrative and logistical frameworks already in place in a lot of these countries. For example, World Vision had been in Lebanon for 40 years before the Syrian crisis began. So when the refugees started arriving, they didn't have to start from scratch with their relief work there. The groundwork was already in place. World Vision makes it very easy to support the relief and development work there for Syrians. You can make a one-time donation by going to worldvision.org Syria. If you would like to check out more about what they're doing with refugee work in Syria and around the world, you can go and check out World Vision's Refugee Responder Program. Just type in World Vision Refugee Responder into any web browser and you'll find information, but I will definitely put a link into the show description and show notes of this episode, and you can check it out for yourself. So yeah, you can be a part of the response through your awareness and through financial support, and you can also respond with innovation. One of the very best things about living in an age of such interconnectedness is that you, from wherever you are right now, can connect with other people who want to think about refugee situations differently. When I was talking to Jana about development options for refugees, I asked her what organizations she knew of that were looking at innovative ways to change the refugee experience. One of them is Project Hive, which is the organization that I worked with. Their website is projecthive.us. And they are looking to find people who are looking to get involved. And they have all sorts of really creative approaches. One of the things that they have brainstormed about is um, smart flight, like a refugee prevention plan, how you could think about working with data scientists to identify what will become a refugee crisis point before it becomes a crisis point. And then after you've gathered all the necessary information, relocate entire families, communities together to a safe territory before the crisis hits. You have less loss of life and you keep those community bonds intact, which is a really traumatic part of a refugee experience, right? You arrive in this place, glad that you're in safety, but you're not connected with the parts of your community that helped make you who you were before. And the other thing that I would say is, you know, I'm talking about data scientists identifying hotspots before they occur. And, and you might be thinking, I'm not a data scientist, (laughs) but you know, that's just one way. That's just uh, one avenue to help. So recapping what we've already covered, you can respond with your support Now, social media support is great, but financial support is even better because, as we all know, money is what makes things happen. You can also respond with offering your innovative ideas or talents or skills to groups like Project Hive. The third way to support is through simply educating yourself. When conversations about refugees happen in person or online, Sometimes it feels a little awkward or intimidating to be a voice for the refugee who isn't permitted to have a voice in a lot of our conversations. We might feel like since we're not experts, we can't really speak to the topic. Or we may even be unsure of the facts and figures ourselves. Vicki Reddy is the co-producer of the Justice Conference, and together with author and speaker Ann Voskamp, she co-founded the We Welcome Refugees movement. 
She was also on this trip to Lebanon, and I've become quite smitten with her and her work. I asked her what it is that she tells people who ask her this question. What can I do to be involved in the response to the Syrian crisis? Here's Vicki. I get asked this question all the time, and most people that I come across anyway do genuinely care and want to help. And I wish that there was a super simple answer. But this is a massive humanitarian crisis, and it is and it will be generational. This problem is not going away anytime soon. And so our solutions do need to be long-term and sustainable. There isn't a quick, easy fix. But there are some ways that we all can engage. We can all pray. Many of us can give financially. Some of us can go overseas and serve. And again, many of us can serve in our own communities. On our website, wewelcomerefugees.com, we list out a number of things that um, people can do, pathways to engaging with the refugee crisis. Um, But I do think that there are three things that regardless of what you can practically contribute, we all can do and I think we must do. The first thing is to understand what the Bible says. When we allow the Bible to inform how we approach the refugee crisis and what our responsibility is as followers of Jesus, it actually changes the narrative. It changes how we view refugees and it changes the narrative in our communities. And that then leads to changing the narrative in our countries. The reality is that Jesus asks us to welcome the stranger, the foreigner and the immigrant and to practice hospitality. So welcoming refugees is a tangible way for us to love our neighbours and to treat others as we would hope to be treated if we were to find ourselves in a similar situation. And the reality is it could so easily be us. But when we understand the biblical mandate, we do look at everything in a different light. The second thing we can do is to educate ourselves on the facts around refugees. There are so many opinions being presented as facts around refugee resettlement, around the vetting process for refugees entering the U.S. And the fear mongering that exists leads us to believe things like all refugees and Muslims are terrorists. We've created a list of questions and answers to those questions on wewelcomerefugees.com slash FAQ. And these are questions that people have asked or statements that are made that we buy into as facts. And it's on each one of us to know the truth and be able to speak up when things are presented that are not correct. And that takes research and looking into it. And lastly, find the stories. Stories are easy to find online of both refugees and those serving them all over the world, but we can also look for those who may be in our own neighborhood. I think that this extends to anyone who's different from us. And I think it's so important that we see the image of God in every person we meet and that we be deliberate about not letting fear or any kind of animosity rule how we respond to people. This is particularly true when, without even realizing it, we take unfounded rhetoric and we paint whole people groups or cultures with the same brush. But when we find people's stories, we see them as people and not as numbers, and it changes everything. This is what will challenge our hearts and minds and expand our worldview. So you can follow along with us at wewelcomerefugees.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we try to share stories of refugees and try to keep the refugee crisis at the forefront of people's minds. And we'd love you to be part of that conversation with us. So we can give our money to support on-the-ground work like water and sanitation winterization in schools. We can give our talents to do something big that just might change the whole refugee paradigm. And we can give our hearts over to listening and learning from the stories of refugees and responding however you feel called to.
to bring this series to a close, but gosh, there is one more thing that I just keep thinking about. So it's our very last day in Lebanon. We travel south out of Beirut to Saida, or the town in the Bible known as Sidon. There we meet with the Sheikh Mohammed, an internationally known and respected scholar and leading voice in interfaith dialogue. He's a Sunni Muslim who presides over the Sunni courts in Saida, and he invited us to go on a tour in his part of the city. He also invited us to the Friday midday prayer service at the mosque where he was speaking. So we, the women on our team, we covered our heads with scarves, we take off our shoes, make our way up to the women's balcony. There we were greeted by women of all ages, preschoolers up to grandmothers, all gathered for the most important service of the week. After Sheikh Mohammed's message is over, the service ends, and we join the many who are just kind of meandering down the steps of the mosque. And one of those grandmotherly types who sat near us in the balcony touches my arm. I smile down at her, and she smiles back. Good? It's good? She asks, pointing back toward the mosque. It was very good, I say. Thank you. She shuffles off, smiling to herself. The Sheikh and his family take us to lunch, the last of our expansive, generous Lebanese meals. I'm seated across from the Sheikh at the table, and he's trying to explain to us how this whole confessional democracy system that governs Lebanon works. And yeah, it's pretty complicated. But as we sit there enjoying our host's warmth and hospitality, my mind keeps wandering back to the other scholar in interfaith dialogue we had met earlier in the week. You remember Dr. Martin Akkad from the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary from part one of the series. Well, I just keep thinking about what he told us near the end of the hour he spent answering our questions. Someone had asked how we can convey to other people in our congregations, our communities, our audiences, the importance of fostering interfaith conversation in this age of high tension and great fear. These were his thoughts. Uh, even in our understanding of God's incarnation and in Christ, the, the dialogical implication of that act of God in history, um, the way rather than, you know, sending us a book or or bringing us to him, uh, you know, he came to us, and uh, it, I mean, there's no greater step to dialogue than going and paying a visit. And as Easterners, we understand that as a basic uh, element of hospitality. And so, a theology of hospitality, a theology of dialogue, um, are crucial in these days, and I think. Uh, Theologians within the Christian tradition, particularly the evangelical Protestant tradition, some have begun, but more and more need to move in that direction of uh, developing a solid theology of hospitality and a theology of dialogue um, in light of current circumstances. A solid theology of hospitality. At every turn during our trip in Lebanon, we are overwhelmed with hospitality. And it's not just the practice of it, though the Lebanese are definitely brilliant at that part. It's their insistence that this is how things should be. 
that maybe this is the true secret of the Lebanese way of living side by side with people with whom you fundamentally disagree. I think about a Lebanese woman we met, a Christian who told us how their whole entire church was transformed from distrust and even disgust with the growing number of Syrians who were joining their congregation, and how that all changed when the Lebanese started visiting the Syrians in their homes. We sat there feeling their welcome, she said, experiencing their hospitality. I'm also thinking about the Syrian woman we talked to in one of the tented settlements, a Muslim woman who, when we asked her what she wished that people knew about their culture, about life in Syria, she said, I wish they knew about our hospitality and our generosity. It just keeps coming up. It comes up so much that I do have to wonder if that's really the bigger takeaway here. Is that the real response? Offering hospitality, whether with our dollars or with our politics or with our homes, is that why in the holy scriptures of each of the world's main religious faiths, there is clear instruction on the importance of welcoming the stranger? In Saida, the Sheikh took us to the St. Nicholas Cathedral in a very old part of town there. The cathedral dates back to the early days of the New Testament church. There's this little room you can go in that's called the Shrine of Saints Peter and Paul. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that in the 27th chapter of Acts, it says that Paul was allowed to visit his friends in Sidon, Saida, where we are, on his way to Rome. Now, Lebanese legend says that it was in that spot in Saida that Saints Peter and Paul met to have their pivotal conversation on whether or not the way of Jesus was meant for the Jewish people only, as Saint Peter at one time believed, or if it was for the Gentile as well, as Saint Paul maintained. Standing there in that cramped and ancient alcove, I listened as a smiling Sunni Muslim told us that this is where the saints Peter and Paul wrestled with the question, is the call of Jesus for the local community only, or is the call of Jesus for the whole world? I suppose in the end, that is the question we all must answer. All that we've been given, our money, our talent, our privilege, our energy, how will we spend it? Is it for our enjoyment alone, or is it given to us that we might share it with the whole world?
There are so many people I want to acknowledge who are part of this series coming together. Thank you to Jana Chapman Gates for guiding my approach to this entire topic. Thank you to awesome community member Julie for holding my hand and getting me through the logistics of travel to the region and also how to set up my family for success while I was gone. To the entire community of awesomes, thank you for your tireless cheerleading and generous prayer for me and my family while I was traveling. Thank you to Vicki Reddy for providing tons of extra footage and for getting me through the airport in Beirut without panicking. Thank you to the incredible, amazing people on our team, Vicki and also Esther Havens, Olivia Enos, Mirka Deanos, and Christopher Jolly Hale. Thank you to Tom Costanza of World Vision for footage, photos, and great company. Thank you, Johnny Cruz, our fantastic World Vision trip leader, and to Olivia Penakayan, our World Vision Lebanon host. I cannot thank you enough for your time and energy. Thank you, World Vision USA and World Vision Lebanon for making this trip possible. So many thanks to my awesome co-host team, Rebecca, Kelly, and Laura, for your unending support before, during, and after this trip. Finally, thank you to our Oklahoma City family and friends for supporting my family in big and small ways, and to my children and my amazing and generous, highly capable husband, Kyle. Thank you for turning me loose to the world so that I could do this work that I felt so strongly called to do. Don't forget show notes with pictures and links to articles and resources for each episode are available at sortaawesomeshow.com. Thank you all so much for listening. It has been an honor to share these stories with you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.